Hello out there, and happy Hanukkah! Or is it? You know, it seems this time of year many people are obsessed and stressed with finding reasons why everything under the sun that's not mentioned in the Bible is pagan or illegitimate. Last year, we talked about whether we could celebrate Hanukkah because it isn't in Leviticus 23. And the difference between traditions on one hand and um, the rebuke traditions of men on the other hand, a.k.a. which traditions honor God while not supplanting his word, and which traditions are oppressive and the ones that Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, called him out on. So Hanukkah falls squarely into the camp of celebrations that were intended to honor God for his great acts of deliverance, in this case from Seleucid oppression, and, um, you know, which doesn't oppress anyone. Now, this year, we're going to cover two more objections to Hanukkah, namely the legend of the miracle of the oil and the charge that the entire celebration is illegitimate because the Hasmoneans who led the battle against the Seleucids and in later generations, you know, took both priestly and ruling leadership over Judea, Galilee, Idumea, and Samaria, that they didn't descend from the line of Zadok and were therefore illegitimate priests. <clears throat> illegitimate high priests, excuse me. Now, where do these charges come from? Are they supported by primary sources? Um, and do they even matter when deciding whether or not one should celebrate Hanukkah? I uh, consulted two scholarly articles for this. Uh, the first is a Brill article written by Michael O. Wise. Uh, and you have to have some serious chops to write for Brill, let me tell you. It's called 4Q245, a.k.a. the Third Scroll of the Vision of Daniel, and the High Priesthood of Judas Maccabeus. It's a whopping 50 pages long, and if you are not familiar with Michael O. Wise, he's a big name in Dead Sea Scroll research, and is one of the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls, a new translation, which is my go-to reference on the subject. The second article is by Allison uh, Schofield and James Vanderkam, and is called, Were the Hasmonean Zedekites? Uh, from the Journal of Biblical Literature, a.k.a. the JBL. Both of these articles were published in 2005, so this is fairly recent research. These three are all heavy hitters in this area of research. I, I have to say, though, I would not recommend reading the first of the two. There was like one page or two pages that were useful out of the 50. <laughs> and, and, oh my gosh, the first one was very, very academic and not related to this subject. It's about reconstruction of fragments. It's like crazy. Okay, so let's talk about this controversy. Is it legit? Or is it much ado about nothing? And man, I've been on a Shakespeare kick lately. Um, hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. I have 
two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. And you know what? Check out my new children's radio show, Context for Kids. And um, that airs on on Saturdays um, at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, we're going through Genesis, and uh, we're talking about, we're just going through different topics in Genesis. We're actually going in order mostly. We're in Genesis 1 right now as I'm recording this, but undoubtedly we're in 2 or 3 by the time this airs. And we're we're linking it all to the Messiah. So, you know, if you've got kids, or if you just like to learn like a kid and learn entirely different stuff that I'm teaching here, you know, check it out. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version. I always feel like it's like the letters E, S, and V, like it's Sesame Street, right? But, you know, you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. Not this series. I'm so used to saying that, but... (laughs) This isn't a Mark teaching. <laughs> I went on I went on uh, autopilot. That's so funny. All right. We'll get back to Mark probably in uh, two weeks. I think next week I might do a teaching on um, Jubilees and why Jubilees is not scripture. I'm reading Jubilees right now for a uh, teaching I'm doing on Mark 7. Anyway, now... Of the two articles I referenced, I already said that I'm recommending reading the Showfield Vanderkam article because it tackles the controversy over whether or not the Hasmoneans were Zedekites in a very objective and constructive way. First, okay, a bit of history. Our history comes from 1st Maccabees. As this is the most reliable ancient source, it was written during the reign of John Hyrcanus, the son of Simon Tassi, the last surviving son of Matthias Hasmoneus and the brother of the very famous Judas Maccabeus. The, you know, this extra biblical document covers roughly 35 years, if you don't count the first nine verses, which I don't. From, I mean, I, I count them as far as content goes, just not as far as timeline goes. Now, from the beginning of the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes to the death of Simon Tassi, the second high priest of the Hasmonean line. So the earliest date would be roughly 130 before the Common Era. Second Maccabees is our second oldest surviving document, which claims to be an abridged version of a five-volume account of the Maccabean Revolt, from a man named Jason of Cyrene, but the original document is lost. So we really have no idea how faithful 2nd Maccabees was to the original. It was written sometime in the first half of the first century before the Common Era. Now, why do I use BCE and CE? Um, Contrary to some rumors, BCE and CE, meaning before the Common Era and Common Era, are actually no less biblical than BC and AD, and certainly no more biblical either. (laughs) Which, you know, BC and AD never came into any sort of real use until the time of Charlemagne. 
during the sixth century church scholars wanted to calculate the precise year of the resurrection not the birth because up to that point there were no formal year designations it was always something like in the fourteenth year of the reign of such and such emperor well um dionysius exegus of scythia, scythia minor scythia minor <laughs> took it upon himself to calculate backward to the birth of yeshua and he did pretty darn well but uh was off by about four or five years based on what we know about the death of herod the great and yeshua being born sometime during the previous two years now Dionysius named his new system A.D., Anno Domini, meaning the year of our Lord, to replace A.D., Anno Diocletian. <laughs> I'm having a, I'm having one of my mouth days, okay? Anno Diocletian, which gave the number of years since the emperor Diocletian began his reign, and for some reason, they stopped counting with individual emperors when they got to him. Now, it wasn't until the 8th century that the Venerable Bede invented B.C., before Christ. System for, you know, counting backwards from the calculated birth. Now, in the 9th century, Holy Roman Emperor Charlemagne adopted the system. It would not gain supremacy in Western Europe, however, until the 15th century. However... There are some complications because Herod the Great died in 4 BCE. And it was confusing to people who assumed that Yeshua was born in the year 1 AD or BC, while others assumed that there was a magical zero year, which they were not, because the idea of zero would not exist in Europe until a few hundred years later. Uh, because of this discrepancy, scholars, including Bible scholars, now use CE and BCE not to erase Yeshua from history, but to clear up the discrepancy. I mean, after all, there are no, you know, BCs and ADs in the Bible, right? Which, I might add, is exactly why it took so long to come into popular usage. They're all man-made designations of time and not biblical. As our understanding of history evolves, so must our designations. Dionysius made a worthy effort, but we have, you know, way more documentary evidence now than he did. Sometimes things that seem ancient and untouchable and biblical are, in fact, none of the above. Okay, so 2nd Maccabees has a lot of sketchy material in it. Some stuff flat, up, flat out doesn't line up with the more reliable first Maccabees, and a lot of it is legendary. However, when we look at the purpose of second Maccabees, the reasons become clear. It was a propaganda letter written by Judean loyalists to the Hasmoneans, or at least Hanukkah lovers. You know, it was written to the Jews of Alexandria during the years where pretty much Everyone hated the later generations of Hasmonean priest kings, who were a piece of work, let me tell you. Now, 2nd Maccabees is a Hanukkah apologetic, and so it's loaded with heart-wrenching stories of martyrdom and dazzling accounts of signs in the sky and, and 
divine retribution against Antiochus Epiphanes. Some of it sounds like it was inspired by Samuel's accounts of David and other parts by Daniel. But as this is not scripture, but instead a plea to the Egyptian Jews to keep Hanukkah, we shouldn't be shocked to see such creative embellishments that, you know, look very much like they came out of uh, the post-Persian and Hellenistic eras. So Strabo, uh, Roman historian, would date to after 2nd Maccabees, and he was a serious, we're going back to different sources here, he was a serious historian. He used um, he was used as source material for Josephus, who wrote at the cusp of the first and second centuries of the Common Era. In between those, we have the Gospel of John, chapter ten, which directly mentions Hanukkah, aka the Feast of Dedication. So, these are our um, sources. Now, from the Hebrew Scriptures, we know that. After the exile, Yeshua, which is the Aramaic form of Yehoshua or Joshua, son of Yehotzedek, served as the first high priest of the Second Temple period during the times of Haggai, Zerubbabel, and Zechariah. He was of the line of Zadok, whose family was given the high priesthood after Abiatar supported Adonijah as David's heir in an attempted coup in um instead of david's choice in solomon now zadok was given the high priesthood and was the first high priest to preside over the first temple in jerusalem his descendant high priest yeshua presided over the second temple as of course yeshua translates now in in english transliterates transliterates translate to jesus presided over the second temple um, as, um, as did his descendants over the next 350 years until one really bad seed entered the picture during the Seleucid drama of the second century BCE. Now, the last priest of Yeshua's line was also named Yeshua before he Hellenized it to Jason. And he actually paid Antiochus Epiphanes, the big bad guy of the Hanukkah story, to give him the high priesthood over his brother Onias, who was already high priest. And then, you know, when he was given the authority, he began to Hellenize Jerusalem. <clears throat> he even put a gymnasium in the city where men competed with each other in the nude. He completely undid the work of Antiochus III, who allowed the Jews to be ruled according to their own Torah laws and to run the temple without interference, and he even lowered their taxes. Now, damage done politically and religiously, Antiochus Epiphanes was not unwilling to be bought a second time, and he sold the high priesthood to a man named Menelaus of unknown family origin, other than he was Jewish. Now, there are two stories. Second Maccabees says he was from the tribe of Benjamin, which would be a big no-no. While Josephus says he was another brother of Jason and Onias. Now, Josephus is probably in error. In fact, you know, there are several instances in his Antiqu Antiquities of the Jews where he makes some pretty big mistakes 
um, and, you know, with facts related to this time period. Sometimes he corrects them in later volumes, but sometimes he doesn't. But then, you know, he was writing on parchment and had no whiteout, so we can forgive him. Now, and there were, this is a confusing time. And there are a lot of names, so, you know, go easy on him. He did mostly a pretty good job. <laughs> now, Menelaus was one of those guys who seemed to have good intentions at first. You know, wanting to get rid of Jason the jerk. But he overspent himself in paying off Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was robbing the temple of the sacred vessels in order to pay him off for making him the high priest. Oh, and he also had Onias III murdered because Onias was going to rat him out for the encroachment and temple desecration. It's after this where things get complicated because they weren't already, right? So let's skip ahead. As you can see, the priesthood was quite possibly in the hands of a Benjamite until a man named Alcimus, who is called a son of Aaron, but nothing more is made high priest after Menelaus's death in 162 BCE. He remains in office until the first Hasmonean high priest, Jonathan, it's the brother of Judas, is given the position by popular demand. Now, there are rumors that his brother Judah was high priest for three years, but first and second Maccabees say nothing about it, and it does seem unlikely. Let's just assume that Jonathan, Judas's brother, was the first high priest of the restored and rededicated temple. It's a safe bet, and it actually doesn't change what we're going to talk about today in the slightest. Now, after Jonathan's murder, his brother Simon became the high priest. And after him, John Hyrcanus I, Aristobulus I, Alexander Janaeus, Hyrcanus II, and Aristobulus II, Hyrcanus II, and Antigonus. What? Whoops. Hyrcanus, that should, first one should have been Hyrcanus I. <laughs> now, bringing to end, bringing to the end of the line, because the Romans stepped in and overhauled that mess, the ruler they chose... Herod the Great, wasn't a better person, but the bloody civil war ended that existed within the Hasmonean family between brothers fighting for supremacy. Now, the first three, Jonathan, Simon, and John Hyrcanus were worthy priests and rulers. I don't think anyone debates this. None of them called themselves king, although the people gave them the title prince. Starting with Aristobulus I, the men were flat-out monsters <clears throat> and took on the title of king and high priest starting in roughly 104 before the Common Era. Now, this was totally not cool. But the three generations before were not guilty in this regard. However, when you study the times, you can see why Hanukkah fell into such horrible disrepute as the deeds of the ancestors loomed large over, you know, the legends of their ancestors' deeds. Hence, Second Maccabees was written largely as a propaganda piece. Now, here's where the controversy comes in. High priests were supposed to come from the line of Zadok as a reward for his faithful service to David when Abiatar supported Adonijah instead of Solomon to replace him. 
anointing him while King David was still alive. So not cool. And many scholars have assumed that the Hasmoneans were not of the line of Zadok simply because they're not descended from Onias' family. But Zadok's lineage was not limited to the family of Onias, or, for that matter, um, High Priest Yeshua, who was the first priest, first high priest over the Second Temple period. In fact, if you look at the priest list of First Chronicles 24, um, you will see that we have zero idea which of the priestly families descended from who. We don't even know which descended from Eleazar and which from Ith Ithamar. We know how many houses from each, but not which ones. And so that's no help at all. We do know from 1 Maccabees that the Hasmoneans descended from the first name listed, which is Yehoriv. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, there is a verse in 1 Maccabees 2.54 where Matthias, the patriarch, calls Phineas the son of Eleazar, their father. And if that is literal, then it narrows down the likelihood that the Hasmoneans were Zadokites because Zadok is also a descendant of Phineas through Eleazar. Excuse me. And so there were a heck of a lot of other priestly lines. In the end, neither biblical uh, nor excellent nor uh, extra-biblical record anywhere. You know, it says the Hasmoneans were Zedekites. So we need to, what we need to do is look at the writings that came from the enemies of the Hasmoneans, um, specifically the Essenes and the Pharisees. Pharisees. Now, both of which had a lot of re legitimate reasons to hate the later Hasmonean rulers. The things they wrote about them were brutal and not unfair. And so certainly, if the Hasmoneans were not legitimate by right of birth to the correct priestly line, someone would say something. The thing is, they never do. Oh, the Essenes and the Pharisees call, call them wicked as the day is long. Why do I keep saying Pharisees? I don't know. The Essenes called John Hyrcanus the wicked priest and the angry lion and the priest who rebelled. Because he opposed their teacher of righteousness and the Pharisees hated Alexander Janaeus, who slaughtered them wholesale along with their wives and children. But uh, there was only one objection seemingly raised as per their legitimacy, and not the legitimacy of the entire line, but just Simon and John Hyrcanus. And for this one, we need to go to Josephus to hear about the sordid tale of John and his falling out with the Pharisees, Sorted because you just don't talk about someone's mama like this. And this is from uh, Josephus's Antiquities here. However, uh, 13, uh, 288 to 98. However, this prosperous state of affairs moved the Jews to envy Hyrcanus. But they that were worst disposed to him were the Pharisees, who were one of the sects of the Jews, as we have informed you already. These have so great power over the multitude that when they say anything against the king or against the high priest, they are presently believed. Now Hyrcanus was a disciple of theirs and greatly beloved by them. And when he once invited them to a feast and entertained them very kindly, when he saw them in good humor, he began to say to them that they knew he was desirous to be a righteous man and to do all things whereby he might please God. 
which was the profession of the Pharisees also. However, he desired that if they'd observed him offending in any point and going out of the right way that they would call him back and correct him, on which occasion they attested to his being entirely virtuous, with which commendation he was well pleased. But still he was... But still there was one of his guests there, whose name was Eleazar, a man of an ill temper, and delighting in seditious practices. This man said, Since thou desirest to know the truth, if thou wilt be righteous and earnest, lay down the high priesthood, and content thyself with the civil government of the people. And when he desired to know for what cause he might lay down the priesthood, whoops, <laughs> have to get this, get to the punchline later. Just, just a minute. I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to Character in Context, where, oops, I was getting to the good part, and then all of a sudden we ran out of time. So we were talking about Eliezer uh, from Josephus' Antiquities of the Jews, volume 13, lines at 288, 98, and uh, <laughs> Eliezer was a gooberhead, let me tell you. So he was a man of ill temper, he was delighting in seditious practice, and everything was going so swimmingly between John Hyrcanus, who was the son of um, Simon Tassi, the last of the Hasmonean brothers, um, <laughs> and, and, and he just had to speak up. Now I will backtrack a little bit. He was uh, telling John Hyrcanus, you know, after all the other Pharisees uh, praised him for his virtuousness, he... Uh, he came up with this. He says, since thou desirest to know the truth, and we all know that they spoke King James English back then, uh, if thou wilt be righteous and earnest, lay down the high priesthood and content thyself with the civil government of the people. I was kidding about that, by the way. And when he desired to know for what cause he ought to lay down the high priesthood, the other replied, we have heard it from old men that thy mother had been a captive under the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. This story was false, and Hyrcanus was provoked against him, and all the Pharisees had a very great indignation against him. Okay, so Eliezer was an idiot and a jerk, and if it isn't obvious, he was saying that John's mom, Simon's wife, was probably sexually violated when she was a captive. Now, what does Leviticus 21, verses 14 through 15 say? And he shall, this is talking about the high priest, and he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute. These he shall not marry, but he shall take as his wife a virgin of all of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people. For I, the Lord, I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Of course, the Torah tells us that a rape victim is as blameless as a murder victim. But she cannot become the wife of a high priest. And the reason is not worthiness, but appearances. She can still eat the tithe, the teremot, all that. She can marry anyone but the high priest. But this dude, Eliezer, is saying that some old men are gossiping that his mom was raped by soldiers. 
that is not something you just say about anyone's mom and you certainly don't make it out to sound like everyone's out there talking smack about her so the implication is that according to leviticus john is ineligible and so is his father simon for marrying her however and here's the important thing no objections were raised because of genealogy if this cantankerous old coot had a better argument against john hyrcanus than the gospel of old men certainly he would have used it not being descended from zadok would be a deal-breaker but it never came up not with the pharisees not with the essenes not with anyone and so is not until you know recently really and so as far as the controversy goes this is one big fat zero as far as evidentiary support goes but beyond this remember that hanukkah isn't a celebration of the hasmoneans but of god's great deliverance of his people and his temple from seleucid oppressors the story of judas maccabeus is told in conjunction with the celebration just as moses is talked about in conjunction with the exodus and the passover but really these stories are a celebration of god and his salvation what shameful the things were done over 50 years later by their descendants is of zero importance it would be like refusing to celebrate passover because of what happened during the time of the judges or at baal peor celebrations are about god's deliverance not about the people so there's no reason not to celebrate hanukkah on on that account if you want to celebrate it you know matthias and his sons by all accounts were all righteous and courageous and trusting in our god and god used them to bring about his deliverance so how about the festival of lights and the miracle of the oil because i hear those used as condemnations of hanukkah as well okay first of all the first person i can see recording the name festival of lights is josephus and he claimed in antiquities of the jews volume 12 um chapter 6 uh, um six or seven that it was his opinion that the name derived from the fact that the right to worship had been given to them during a time of great darkness when they had lost hope and i apologize i just realized here that i used Whitson numbers for this and Loeb's numbers for the last one oops anyway there's two different ways of dividing up josephus's writings i apologize so i paraphrased that but um that's the gist of the pa of the passage josephus wrote that at the very end of the first century of the common era now he might very well have been downplaying the revolutionary ties to the festival because he was writing for his roman patron and romans hated insurrection and had a very complex series of laws devoted to making sure not enough people could gather legally to make starting one you know easy so as this was long after the destruction of the temple i'm not entirely convinced that this wasn't the popular understanding at the time okay we just don't know on the other hand we have uh megillat ta'anit the scroll of fasting and if you think this is a scroll about fasting you would be wrong <laughs> it's actually a scroll that that details the 35 great days historically 
on the biblical calendar on which fasting is outright forbidden and on 14 of them you can't publicly mourn either now in chapter 9 um pertaining to the ninth month of kislev on the biblical calendar on the 25th of the month is hanukkah eight days on which one does not eulogize um mourn because when the greeks entered the temple they defiled all the oil there when the hand of the Hasmoneans was made strong and they defeated the Greeks, they checked in the temple and found one jar, only found one jar of oil sealed with the mark of the high priest, which remained undefiled. Though there was only enough in it to light for one day, a miracle occurred through it and they lit the temple lamps from it for eight days. The following year, they decreed those eight days to these to be the eight days of celebration and what justification did they see for making hanukkah eight days wasn't the dedication hanukkah which moshe did in the wilderness only seven days as it says and you shall not leave the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days and it says the one who brought his offering on the first day was blah 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 and on the seventh day Ephraim made his offering, so too we find at the dedication which Shlomo, Solomon, made, that it only lasted seven days, as it says. For the inauguration of the altar, they made seven days, and these feast seven days. So what reason did they see to make this dedication eight days? In the days of the kingdom of Greece, the Hasmoneans entered the temple, built the altar, plastered it with plaster for seven days, and were preparing the vessels for service. The rededication done by the Hasmoneans it is to be marked off for all generations. And why is it a practice for all generations? They fixed it when they came out from a narrow place into broad spaces, and they said praises and thanksgiving, lighting lamps in purity. Since the Greeks had gone into the temple and defiled all the vessels, there was nothing with which to light. When the Hasmoneans were victorious, they brought seven skewers of iron, covered them with tin, and began to light. All right. Although the claim among some is that it was written sometime between 40 and 70 of the Common Era, uh, before the uh, destruction of the temple, second temple, Josephus, a priest during the latter of these years, was either unaware of the story or didn't feel he should tell it. However, the explanatory note to Megillat Tanit claims that it was written by zealots during the years right before the destruction of the second temple. If this was the case, and this was zealot propaganda, then Josephus would likely know nothing about it. As Second Maccabees has a lot of legendary material but says nothing about this account, it's likely it is indeed fictional zealot propaganda composed sometime between 66 and 70 as the note claims. Certainly, First or Second Maccabees would have included this account were it original and not wartime propaganda designed to give hope that God would once more eject the invaders from both Jerusalem and the temple precincts. Now, Last year, I talked about the difference between traditions of men which are oppressive, the ones that Yeshua condemned, and the traditions that are good, which we see Yeshua engaging in, like the blessing over the bread and the traditions which he neither condemned nor seemed to observe. There seems to be a lot of leeway 
and what we do as long as we're not harming anyone or breaking any actual commandments because let's face it the commandments are given with few details to help us out in keeping them anyway so someone else's interpretation of a commandment can be called adding to or taking away if we don't like their interpretation but then they can do the same for us we're kind of ridiculous that way sometimes and we're not going to rehash all that though what i do want to talk about is the purpose of hanukkah and all biblical celebrations they're all about celebrating god's great deliverances and protections and provisions they are how ancient peoples honored gods through the festival totally for the honor of whatever god was in question people talk a lot about the hebraic mindset and it i'll tell you it kind of drives me crazy because they're really talking about the general ancient mindset which was also shared by the hebrews but was not exclusive to them torah was exclusive to the hebrews but not the overall ancient mindset of how things worked and how you celebrated and honored and served your deity yahweh tweaked their understanding and their methods but didn't entirely overturn them they were given they were still given a portable and later a permanent temple like the nations they were given a spring barley festival but it wasn't like the babylonian barley festival the akitu which is a word that means barley cutting which combined the har barley harvest with their kingship festival for israel their king kingship festival was six months away in the fall with coronations falling on yom teruah rosh hashanah whatever you want to call it because it's actually not named it's given descriptions but no names babylonian years began in the spring but biblical years began in tishri although the biblical months marking off the feast began in nisan the nations around them sacrificed in order to feed their gods and care for them israel's god didn't need to be fed because he has you know he had no cor corporeal form to be in need of sustenance and he wasn't pathetic like the gods of the nations <laughs> the gods of the nations created people to be their slaves on the earth um and and they didn't even create the earth themselves whereas yahweh served humanity by creating the earth to perfectly suit their needs you know i could go on and on with things that are like but also unlike as yahweh revamped their way of thinking about things in some ways and left it entirely alone in others now what many don't seem to understand today is that festivals are for joyously proclaiming the works of yahweh when we say that feast isn't biblical and so it's pagan and adding to torah we're missing the point entirely of what the festivals meant to bible people the people to whom the bible was written and actually made more sense to than it does to us to them if god did something worthy of praise you celebrated it he didn't wait till passover shavuot or the fall feasts if god did something overwhelmingly amazing and awesome in saving an entire people from extinction as in esther and during the maccabean revolt against the seleucid greeks where the armies of Antiochus Epiphanes were slaughtering people on the Sabbath and killing anyone found keeping the Torah, you know, then it becomes a yearly remembrance because genocide is pretty serious business. This isn't about wanting to add to scripture. It's all about recognizing the great works of God, which we cannot do enough. Amen? Okay. 
Okay, so some legendary stuff crept in and is believed by some. Who cares? It has zero impact on the original intent of Hanukkah in celebrating the rededication of the Jerusalem temple after it was defiled by the Greeks. So later Hasmoneans became kings and priests and were monsters again. Who cares? Is you know, I mean I I care but but not as you know. If the focus of the the feast is to honor God's mighty works, then what came many decades later is irrelevant. No one's having a parade for Alexander Janaeus. All right? But do we allow the mighty deliverances of God to fall into an ocean of forgetfulness because we disapprove of some legendary material and later bad acts? Do they override our joy over such a great salvation? Now, Christmas came about in a similar way. Okay, don't turn off the <laughs> Despite a whole lot of propaganda over the last 200 years and some outright made-up stories. Now, I gave up Christmas, I think, back in 2004, and I hate what it's become. But we have to remember that during the heyday of the Roman Empire, the birthdays of emperors passed in presence, and often their family members were treated as public holidays. A word that comes from holy days, all right? These emperors in particular called themselves son of God on their coins because they believed that their predecessors were divine, having been declared so by the Senate after the death of Julius Caesar. I look at that environment, and to me, it is no shock that the early Christians would want to know and celebrate the birth date of the true one and only son of God. Now, around 200 of the Common Era, Clement of Alexandria wrote... There are those who have determined not only the year of our Lord's birth, but also the day, and they say it took place in the 28th year of Augustus, and in the 25th day of the Egyptian month, Pashon, he, he, was, he was from Alexandria, so Egyptian months he would have referenced, um, pa, Pachon, which I don't know how to pronounce, which is May 20th on our calendar, and treating of his passion with very great accuracy, some say that it took place in the 16th year of Tiberius, on the 25th of Famanoth, which is March 21st, and others on the 25th of Farmuti, <laughs> April 21st, and others say that on the 19th of Farmuti, April 15th, the Savior suffered. Further, others say that he was born on the 24th or 25th of Farmuti, which is uh, April 20th or 21st. So where did December 25th come from anywhere? There are a lot of claims of pagan origins, but those claims never emerge until the 12th century, only 800 years ago. It's very probable that it's, it's tied to the date set for the crucifixion by Tertullian. Around... Uh, 200 of the Common Era, Tertullian of Carthage, which is also in Africa, reported the calculation of the 14th of Nisan, the day of the crucifixion according to the Gospel of John, in the year Jesus died equivalent to March 25th in the Roman solar calendar. March 25th, of course, 
is nine months before december twenty fifth it was later recognized as the feast of the annunciation the commemoration of jesus's conception thus jesus was believed to have been conceived and crucified on the same day of the year exactly nine months later jesus was born on december twenty fifth okay and that this is quoted from um uh biblical archaeology uh article called um how december 25th became christmas i will have it in my blog now are some elements of the christmas celebration linked to roman and western european observances perhaps but there's no concrete evidence it, it, there's so much speculation and some outright fictions a lot of the pagan origins of everything came from alexander hislop's anti-catholic propaganda which has been flat out discredited by archaeology and which supports none of his claims and some of you know some more modern works of fiction in this century by lou wright richard rives and ralph woodrow who when challenged actually studied out what he was claiming and had to recant i have studied babylonian hittite canaanite egyptian and assyrian religion and the stories out there about ties to christmas are absolutely ludicrous and it's really too bad because i've seen families divided over the content of those books you know which is fictional and found its way into too many books and teachings within the hebrew roots movement and messianic judaism and some sects of christianity as well i am not a fan of christmas as it exists today for certain my family celebrates the birth of yeshua on the first day of the feast of tabernacles i do love the hymns in the stores okay but the fact that i don't celebrate it doesn't mean that i'm going to undermine it with made-up stories no matter how many people are teaching them and and people who are observant will notice that a lot of ministries have backed far away from these teachings since i first started publishing my research based on actual archaeology in 2015 none of my teaching group teaches this anymore because we can't we only teach what we can prove from history and archaeology we can't afford to be so adamantly against christmas and easter that we become compromised into believing whatever we hear about it for those of you who are unfamiliar with my research all of it is based on legitimate scholars with my references provided and not just as so many do claiming it's obvious or everyone knows when come to find out no one outside the western world quote-unquote knows these claims at all because they originated here fairly recently but you know like the fruit of any poisonous tree the racist and incendiary material designed by a 19th century protestant reverend and not a historian as many claim to discredit catholics and to engender hatred against them has backfired and is now being used by people who want to discredit protestants and you know that's how the fruit of the poisonous tree always works it comes back to bite whoever planted it in the first place now if you are interested in that research you can find it on my website theancientbridge.com under the category challenging the memes and i didn't go out planning to discredit this stuff hey I used to teach it myself for a short while before accidentally stumbling on the evidence that discredited it, you know, while I was studying temple defilement in Ezekiel. But truth is truth, 
and I actually had to rewrite my first book to eliminate the one paragraph where I made those claims of paganism, and and I even shamefully said how easy it was to verify online. It is so embarrassing. Um, but I was just passing on the claims of those who had claimed they did the research by claiming I had done it too. Lesson learned. Don't say you've studied something when all you've done is listen to YouTube videos and read salacious Googled pages not written by experts in the field. It's why I give you guys my references, no matter, you know, what I'm teaching. So, you know what? Happy Hanukkah or Merry Christmas if you celebrate that. I'm no longer a card-carrying member of the, the holiday police, and I was... I was never qualified to be one in the first place. And I hope that um, one of the things I've been teaching over the years, you know, and especially since finding out how wrong I was about so many of these pagan origins of everything is, um, you know, paganism, idolatry is a very serious accusation. Um, the, the penalty was death in the word, but there's also another penalty in the word. And if you accuse someone of doing something idolatrous and, and because it's a, it's a death penalty offense, the word says that when you make a false accusation and you are found to have made a false accusation, that if it's found out to be untrue, then you bear the penalty that you wanted to be enforced on somebody else. And so, you know, be careful with your accusations. If it's a death penalty offense, and, and, and don't just say, oh, well, I just did it on Facebook or I just did it at a family gathering. And so it doesn't count because it doesn't count unless it's in court. Well, that's the same thing as saying that gossip doesn't count unless it's in court. But I bet if it's told about you, you'd feel entirely differently. Anyway, see you next week.